Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. It is so good to see you guys. Uh, my name's Pete, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If you uh, just stumbled in from uh, seeing something going on here, we want to welcome you to the first ever Kanye 2020 rally, and uh, glad that you're here to celebrate with us this morning. Can I wear sunglasses? Is that all right? You're so far away, you can't even tell, so there, that's going to be better for everybody. Uh, if you have a Bible, we will be in the book of Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and uh, I invite you to turn there. And um, here's what we're going to do. There is a handful of classic Bible stories that have found their way into the collective consciousness of most of Western civilization. Um, even if you have very little exposure to the Christian faith, you're probably at least somewhat familiar with stories like uh, Adam and Eve or David and Goliath or Noah's Ark. Um, and for those of us who grew up in Christian homes, we first learned these stories in Sunday school uh, as little kids, or at least I know that I did. Um, I grew up in a wonderful Christian family. My dad was a pastor and a missionary. My mom was a Sunday school teacher, and really our lives revolved around church and ministry um, for many years. And the classic Bible stories were among the first stories that I learned as a kid, and they began to shape my worldview and my imagination from the time um, I was little. I remember once when I was maybe in second or third grade, we were shopping at the Christian supply store. Do you remember those? It's the place where you could go to buy like the new Michael W. Smith tape or Precious Moments or a Thomas Kincaid and you get your little can of Testaments on the way out. Um, we were at one of those places and I saw this uh, sweet t-shirt on the rack that had like cool comic book style drawings of all these um, classic Bible characters. And it said, Heroes of the Old Testament. It had like Abraham and Moses and Samson and David and Daniel. As I think back now, all a bunch of uh, white men in their depiction for some reason. But at eight or nine years old, I was like, that is an amazing shirt and I need that. And so my mom bought it for me and I wore that shirt with pride for years to come. It was kind of like my witness wear so I could like preach the gospel to all my nine-year-old friends. I remember another time my dad had just gotten home from a missionary journey um, to the, what was the Soviet Union at the time. And I heard him telling all these stories about smuggling Bibles into countries closed by communism or how his hotel room was uh, tapped so that they wouldn't be talking about Jesus. And I remember thinking, my dad is like a modern day uh, hero of the faith. And I remember asking my mom even, if they were still writing the Bible today, would dad be in it? Because I saw the Bible as kind of like this hall of fame of Christian heroes. Uh, you had the Old Testament heroes on my shirt, 
But then you also had New Testament heroes like Peter and Paul. And then I thought for sure they were going to be modern day Christian heroes as well. And if there were, then Chuck Kelly, my dad, had to be one of them. So I asked my mom, would dad be in the Bible if they were still writing it today? And she said, yeah, no. Uh, My mom's actually here this morning. She came to celebrate the 4th with us last night. And... uh, I would ask her to stand, she's still pretty hungover. But um, my early understanding of the Bible was that it told a bunch of stories of Christian heroes. But as I grew up, what I started to see is that there's something way different and even way better that the Bible's trying to do. So one of my professors in seminary used to always remind us that the Bible is an ungodly book. And here's what he meant by that, that there are 66 books that make up the Christian Bible and they're broken down into 1,189 chapters. And of the 1,189 chapters, only four of those chapters depict what we might call a godly world, meaning they depict things the way that God wants them to be. And those four chapters are the first two and the last two. Genesis 1 through 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are the only four chapters in the Bible where they take place in a world where things are the way that they're supposed to be. Meaning everyone and everything is living in this beautiful, rightly ordered set of harmonious relationships with one another. And the Hebrew word for this is shalom. A world of joy, of unity, of flourishing, of peace, and of justice. And so the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible describe this world, the world we all long for. But the other 1,185 chapters in between all take place in what we might call a broken world, a world marked by pain and suffering and injustice and violence. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22 describe the world the way that it should be, but Genesis 3 through Revelation 20 describe the world the way it is. So in other words, 99.7% of the Bible is telling a story that takes place in a broken and fractured world, which we all know is the same world that we're living in. A world that, yes, is still full of so much beauty and goodness and hope and love, but it's also a world that's marked by pain and suffering, by injustice and violence. Evil, corruption, terrorism, war, racism, pollution, greed. So, the majority of the Bible, including pretty much all the classic Bible stories that many of us are familiar with, they take place in a broken and fractured world, or the world that we know. And here's why this is so important for us to understand. Because if you don't see this, then you're going to have a hard time recognizing there are all all kinds of things that happen within the Bible that aren't endorsed by the Bible. 
If you don't understand that the story of the Bible takes place in a broken world, then it's really easy to open up to some of the Old Testament narratives and say, look, the Bible endorses slavery or genocide or polygamy or adultery or something like that. Yeah, all those things happen in the stories of the Bible, but if you actually read the stories, they aren't portrayed as good things, but simply in a very honest and realistic depiction of what human life on planet Earth has looked like throughout history. And so these stories, particularly the ones in the Old Testament, despite what my awesome t-shirt said, aren't actually a collection of heroic tales to inspire us. They're more like disaster stories to warn us. They show us how not to do it. So the way we understand and approach the Bible has significant implications for what we see when we open its pages. The Bible is not a collection of Hall of Fame Christian stories that are to be enshrined and admired. Instead, it is the unified story that points us to the one true hero the world has ever known, a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who laid down his life to save the world. So here's what we're going to do this summer. Each week, over the next nine weeks, we're going to take one classic Bible story from the Old Testament, and we're going to try to come to it not as a Sunday school lesson, but as a way of trying to find the whole gospel in the whole Bible. In other words, we're asking, how might the Spirit of God want to use these well-worn flannel graph tales to invite us deeper into the life of Jesus and his kingdom that has come to earth and is still coming. And so, this morning, we are going to start at the beginning of the story with the passage that Linda read for us from Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve. Now, when we come to stories like the one we're looking at today, there are all kinds of questions that arise for us. In Genesis 1, God creates the universe by speaking. He speaks into existence day and night and sun and moon and light and dark and sky and sea and plants and animals. And all of this, we're told, occurs within seven days. And then in Genesis 2, God makes the first humans, and the man is formed out of the dust of the ground, and the woman is formed from the man's side, and then God gives them this garden in the Middle East to take care of, and he tells Adam to name all of the animals. Okay, so if you're paying attention, this is a story that raises some serious questions for serious readers, doesn't it? Does the Bible really teach us? that God made the world in seven days? And how was there light before there was sun? And where did God come from? And if this book tells us how humans were first created, then who was there to know and write the book? And of course, the most perplexing question of all, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? We're not told the answer to any of those questions in this text. But what I want to tell you is that those kinds of questions are not only okay, they are necessary. It is a good thing to come to the Bible curious. It's a good thing to take the Bible seriously and ask those kinds of questions. Sometimes we hear people say something like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. No, the Bible demands to be taken more seriously than that. 
It invites us to wrestle, to interrogate, and to say it's not only okay to ask hard questions, but it's necessary if we're ever truly going to understand what God has put into his word. And so, all these questions that Genesis 1 and 2 create for us, questions about creation and evolution and human origins, those are all good questions. And, but for our purposes this morning, I'm going to ask you to set aside all the controversial and confusing parts of the story for a moment, and we're going to focus together on the parts that are straightforward. I, we're just going to avoid all the weird stuff for now. So, Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, there's this talking snake. Here's what I want to say about that. First, understand that the first readers of this story thousands of years ago would have known just as well as we do that snakes don't typically talk. And so we can assume that the author of this story is trying to get us to ask some questions. And so... When this talking snake shows up in our story, what's the author trying to do? Well, in the ancient Near East, we know that a snake was a well-known symbol for evil. And we're told here in verse 1 that this particular snake is a crafty snake, meaning he's intelligent, but he's also deviant and deceptive. And the first words that come out of this snake's mouth are, did God really say? Did God really say? Now, why is this a big deal? Well, because up until now, the first two pages of the Bible tell this story in which, again, if you'll remember, chapters one and two, describe the world as it ought to be. It's been a world and a life marked by beauty and goodness and peace and unity. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 3, this evil crafty snake shows up and begins to question whether or not things are actually as good as they seem. So you could say it like this. First in verse 1, the snake questions God's word. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He questions whether you, whether humans, whether these particular humans can trust what God has said. Did God really say? And then in verse 4, the next question, or the next thing he says is, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat, eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So first he questions God's word, and then what he's doing here, amongst other things, is he's questioning God's love. Can you really trust that God is telling you the truth? Are you really sure that God actually loves you? See, God has said, I'm good, the tree is bad, trust me. But the snake says, I'm good, God is bad, trust me. And Eve has to choose who to trust. These questions that hadn't existed in the world as it should be, begin to emerge. Do you really know who God is? And do you really know who you are? The first questions the snake asks are designed to get the humans to question, who is God and who are they? 
which is a really big deal because the storyteller has already told us what God has said about humans. God has already given the humans a very specific identity within his world. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the world that Genesis was written in, what did the image of God mean? Well, at that time, kings were those who were called the image of God. You would find it inscribed on the statues or the monuments depicting the rulers of the day. The king of Egypt or the king of Babylon was thought of as the physical embodiment or the physical representation of God on earth, or in other words, the image of God. And so the first readers of Genesis were immersed in a highly theistic world. Everyone believed in a god or some kind of gods. And pretty much every culture had some kind of king or ruler that was their image of God. Meaning the king represented God to them. And so whatever the king said, you did. Whatever the king wanted, the king got and so in Genesis 1, God is not just portrayed as a creator, but he is portrayed as a king. He speaks, and it is. And then here comes this huge twist in the story, especially compared to other ancient Near Eastern stories about the creation of the world. Who in this story is the image of God? How is this king going to set up his kingdom on earth? Who is going to be this king's representative to the world? Is it just going to be the rich and the powerful? Is it just going to be the strong? Is it just going to be men? The first readers would have been shocked that God wasn't going to be represented by those that were strong and powerful in the world's eyes only, that God would be imaged by every single human being, male and female. He created them. Every single human made in the image and likeness of God. This is a revolutionary idea. And this is a concept that for many, many years now has deeply shaped the ethical imagination of faithful Christians. When you think about the role that the early church played within their culture, they stood out among the crowd and they didn't fit nicely into the political or cultural boxes of their day. Because they were those that truly believed in the innate dignity and worth of every single human life. 
They were known for celebrating and defending every person, whether male or female, whether old or young, whether sick or healthy, whether black or white or every color in between. We might say whether documented or undocumented, whether born or unborn. For followers of Jesus who take this story seriously, we have a rock-solid, irreducible foundation on which we can declare that every single human life matters. This is why many faithful Christians often find themselves experiencing a sense of political homelessness because we champion the full spectrum of human life. And that doesn't always fit nicely into one category or another. But you know, as a church, we've been on a journey discussing race and reconciliation. Do you know where Dr. King and the other civil rights activists got their philosophical foundation for the civil rights movement? It came from this text that we're in today. Dr. King said the Imago Dei, which is the doctrine of the image of God, is the idea that all humans have something within them that God injected. And this gives everyone a uniqueness, a worth, a dignity, and we must never forget this. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every person from a treble white to a base black are significant on God's keyboard, precisely because everyone is made in the image of God. And so God creates this world and he creates these people called humans to bear his image and likeness, to represent him to the world and to partner with him in taking the raw materials and the beauty of his creation and cultivating them and organizing them and maximizing their potential for the sake of universal flourishing, to be human is to matter. Now here's why this is so important as we come into Genesis chapter three. God has already defined who he is and who humans are as those who are like him and bear his image. And what does the serpent say? The serpent says to the woman that if she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then what? Then she will become like God. For many years as I read this story, I assumed that's the problem. That it was, the sin is the temptation for humans to become like God. But if you understand the backdrop of the last two chapters, what do we see? Humans are already like God. So what the serpent is doing is deceiving her into believing that she was lacking something that she, in fact, already possessed. Humans are already made in the image and likeness of God. Humans are already like God. Human life is already sacred and valuable. And the snake convinces these first humans 
that they are lacking something that indeed was already theirs and sends them looking for something, searching high and low for something that they've already found and sends them longing for something and doing whatever they can to obtain something that they already possess. See, what we know is that the story of Adam and Eve isn't just a story about what happened. It's the story about what always happens. This first man and woman, however you think about this narrative, are meant to represent the entirety of humanity that would come after them. And we also are prone to believe this same type of lie or deception. And I would ask you even this morning to consider where in your life have you been deceived into believing that you need something that in fact you may already have? What are some of those things? For many of us, a universal desire or need is simply to be loved, to be accepted, to have a sense that we're okay. And for many of us, that quest for love and acceptance takes a million different paths or trajectories, but in the end, we are doing whatever we can, giving our lives to this quest, searching high and low, trying to find love and acceptance, when in fact, maybe, we are already loved and accepted more than we could ever imagine. And so Eve gives in to this temptation she chooses to believe the lie. Rather than trusting what God has said about who he is and who she is, she chooses to to believe the lie. And the result is that for the very first time, this thing called shame enters the story of God's world. For the very first time, things are no longer as they ought to be. And it starts with a human saying, I am not the person I am supposed to be. She's ashamed. So at this point in the story, as the narrative begins to unfold, the reader would be captivated by everything has been so good and all of a sudden humanity has brought evil and wickedness and shame into the world. What is this God going to do? How is the, the, the God of this story going to respond to humanity's distrust and rejection of him? And what readers would have expected would be a God who would punish, who would curse humanity, a God who would become violent. But instead, what we have in Genesis 3 is a God who calls out to humans, who goes looking for them, in compassion and in mercy with the heart of a lover comes after this man and woman who bear his image. 
He seeks them out. He engages them in conversation. He asks them questions, trying to draw out the depths of their heart and their desires. And then, rather than pronouncing a curse upon humanity, what God does first is he pronounces a curse upon this serpent. He curses humanity's enemy. And what he does is promise that in the final verse that we read today, verse 15, that to the snake he says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What we have here in the Bible is the first messianic promise. That as this world, this good world that God made and loves and says is good, as it begins to fall apart, God doesn't abandon or step away or reject or neglect, but instead he pronounces that this is not how this story is going to end. I will send one. Through the seed of a woman, interesting enough, not the seed of a man as biology would lead us to expect, but through the seed of a woman. And that one will come and he will do battle with this serpent. And he promises that that seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike his heel. Now, in an ancient Near Eastern context, if you were to get struck on the heel by a serpent, that isn't just a bummer. That is a death sentence. To be bit by a serpent means that you're going to die. So do you see the picture? Do you see the promise that even in this garden, God says, yes, the world is now broken, but I am going to restore it. I am going to repair it, and I'm going to do it by sending a man through this human family. And one day that man is going to crush the head of the serpent, but it's going to cost him his life. And so we begin to see that even obscure stories about talking snakes and poisonous apples are actually stories about the one true hero that the world has ever known. We see a promise of Jesus and his kingdom that would one day come. What's fascinating is that later in the Bible, in, uh, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would refer to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Or another time he's referred to as the second Adam. So the picture is that what humanity was supposed to be, what Adam and Eve were supposed to be, what the first humans were supposed to be, and those that, that reflected God's image in the world, and they failed, Jesus has now come, and he has done victoriously and successfully. He is the true image of the invisible God. And so there's an invitation that's built into this story that says, Adam and Eve isn't just what happened, it's what always happens. That I can see myself 
in their rejection of God. I can see myself in choosing to believe a lie over the truth. I can see myself in wanting to create a world that revolves around me rather than finding my place in a world that revolves around God. I can see myself in that first Adam. But the story of the gospel is that we are now invited to see ourselves in the second Adam. That we are united to the perfect image of the invisible God. And as Jesus bears the image of God, we now bear the image of Christ. I have packed a significant amount of wrestling guilt and shame throughout my 40 years of believing in Jesus because I haven't felt like if I'm supposed to represent Jesus to the world, the world is in bad shape. I love Jesus and I'm given my life to knowing him and to trying to understand his heart and his mind and the way he sees me and God and my neighbor and my enemy. But just like you, there are so many ways where I fall short over and over again. So many ways that I fail to love God and love neighbor as I love myself. And so on a regular basis, I find myself feeling naked and ashamed, even as a follower of Jesus. But what if there's a whole new version of this deception that is especially for us today? What if instead of some preacher standing on a stage yelling at you that you ought to be more like Jesus... What if I said to you, what if it's already true? What if the gospel is that you have already been united to Christ? What if his image has already been imprinted on you? And what if in God's eyes and in God's heart, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus? Well, then all of a sudden, all my attempts to cover my nakedness and shame, all my attempts to be good, to be religious, to be Christian, to be spiritual, to wear witness wear t-shirts, to do whatever I need to do to prove to myself and others and God that I'm okay. If I have already been united to Christ, if I already bear his image, then I'm free to simply love God, and to love others. Not as a means to self-justification or in a self-righteous pursuit, but as one who is loved. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and we are in him, and he is in us. Whether you are aware of that, for those that have received this good news, repented of their sin and crossed from death to life, it's already true. Amen. Church, this morning we're going to invite you to come to Jesus again. 
And I hope that on your way in, you were able to pick up a little single-serving communion pack. It's not quite the way we did it. Definitely not the way they did it in the upper room. But it's our best attempt at receiving the grace that is Jesus anew this morning. And so as the band comes to close us in a time of response, I want to invite you to come to the table, to repent, and to believe the good news. That you are loved, that you are accepted. That if you want to know how God feels about you, you just need to ask, how does God feel about Jesus? And from a place of beloved security, I am convinced that we begin this journey of transformation to become the kind of people that the world needs most, especially at a time like this. People who are freed up to give our lives away in love. In ordinary, everyday forms as well as whatever God might call us to do or to be. Antioch, will you stand with me? We'll close in prayer. Lord Christ, we celebrate your life, your death, your resurrection, the giving of your spirit, your ascension, and your promise that one day you will return and establish your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We can't wait for that day, Lord. The brokenness, the division, the polarization, the pain that marks this world. God, we know that it breaks your heart and it's not the way things are supposed to be. But we thank you that you haven't abandoned us, but you have come to us and given yourself to us in Jesus. And so we receive that love and that acceptance this morning again and pray that you would empower us by your spirit to live the life of your son free from shame, free from guilt, free from all the baggage, all the self-righteousness, all the stuff, but that we would simply live as those who know how deeply we are loved as members of your family and citizens of your unshakable kingdom. Lord, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.